Father, I thank you for him having the courage to preach your word to your people in a, in a spiritual context of resistance. God, I'm asking that you would strengthen his resolve right now. Father, I pray that he would be encouraged to continue to be a standard bearer. Lord, I lift up every pastor in this country, and yea, God, around the world, that they would continue to shepherd the flock of God. That the shepherd would continue to be a protection for the flock. Father, I pray that your people who call you by your name, that we would wake up out of our slumber and sleep, that we might rise up as a mighty army to take back what is rightfully yours. Now, Heavenly Father, I pray that you would use this word that you have prepared for your people today, that it would lead them beside the still waters, that it would restore their very soul. And that we would be in a position, as David said, I am not wanting. We ask this in the name of Jesus. And the church said, amen. 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 Praise the Lord. You may be seated in the presence of the Lord. Amen. Amen. What an honor. What an honor to be able to stand before the people of God and to proclaim his word. In 1929, a football player named Roy Regales made the unenviable decision that left him with the name Wrong Way Regale. Even though he was a star offensive center, he played both ways, while playing in the most important game of the year, the Rose Bowl in California, University of California was playing Georgia Tech. One of Regil's teammates forced a fumble. And Regil's saw the ball on the ground. He lifted it up, and he began to take flight with all of the speed and effort that his oversized body allowed him to manufacture. He ran 67 yards, with, but he heard no cheers. And to his surprise, when he got to the three-yard line, his own teammate tackled him. Roger Regales had run 67 yards in the wrong direction. He was three yards away from scoring a touchdown for the wrong team. As a result of his mistake, they were forced to punt the ball from the three-yard line. The punt was blocked by a Georgia Tech player. He ran it into the end zone, and it, it became a touchback for two points. And so the University of California went into halftime trailing by two points. Regales was so traumatized and disappointed, embarrassed, humiliated that he said to the coach, I don't want to play anymore. I quit. I, 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 don't put me back in the game. I failed the team. Please don't make me play again. His coach turned to him and he said, it's only halftime. It's only halftime. When Roger, when Roy Regill returned to the field, he played such an inspired game that he ultimately, because of those, act, those uh, athletic feats, ended up in the Hall of Fame of the Rose Bowl because of the second half. Pivot he made. He went from being a total failure in his own mind 
a person who had decided to quit, to someone who made an adjustment, who, who pivoted, resulting in his team winning the Rose Bowl. If you and I are all going to overcome traumatic experiences in our life, such as we've gone through these last 18 months, I don't care who you is, you went through something. You must learn how to pivot. You need to learn how to play the cards that you've been dealt. You need to play the hand that you've been dealt. You need to be flexible. You have to be the kind of person who can change his or her course of action to avoid disaster. I was talking to someone, and I was saying that if I'm about to have an accident, please yell at me, bite me, whatever you got to do. And the person said, if you yelled at me, I'd start arguing with you. You, you can argue with me or pivot. And now, even the arguing is a form of pivoting, but if you don't make an adjustment, you're going to experience disaster. Pivoting means that you know how to disengage from the good to embrace the best. Someone who knows how to pivot, no matter what the circumstances, can shift mentally and emotional gears in order to deal with the issue at hand. We say that people who do that think well on their feet. Really what we're saying is they know how to pivot. People who know how to pivot embrace healthy changes even when it's painful. I was sharing how on uh, Tuesday night, I had six different electric, electronic devices, technical devices in front of me at the same time. Laptop, two phones, uh, desktop. Uh, whoa, how in the world? I never imagined the world like that. But if I took the position, I ain't pivoting to no electronics. I ain't going to learn how to do no computer. Guess what? I wouldn't be working. Wouldn't have no income. People who know how to pivot can shift mentally and emotional gears to deal with the issues at our hand. They embrace healthy change. One of the things that causes people to have mental breakdowns and find themselves in isolation at the end of their life is inflexibility. If you're an inflexible person, if you are too rigid, if you are too narrow-minded in how you think, you will not be able to pivot. And that inability will cause you to live in a life of con consistent and constant trauma. You're going to always be button heads with someone. Well, I'm just stubborn. OK, you just stay stubborn. But as for me and my house, now, before David sat on the throne of Israel, when we come to 1 Samuel chapter 30, one of the things that he had to learn as a shepherd is the, how to pivot, how to adjust, how to turn. David had to learn that you didn't fight a lion the same way you fought a bear. David had to learn the art of pivoting when he decided that he would take on Goliath because you couldn't fight Goliath in King Saul's armor. David was masterful in the skill of pivoting. And I want you to know that the, the experiences in your life that you find yourself going through, at any point in time, God is preparing you for what's ahead. And how you handle today's storms will enable you to pivot. David became a great leader because he knew how to adjust. He knew how to embrace change. He knew what to do, when to do it, and how to do it in order to get what 
needed to be done, done. Somebody say amen. Now I want to share with you from the life of David some principles that will help you and me to develop the skill of adjusting in a time of a crisis so that you, like Isaiah said, you will mount up with wings of eagles. You will run and not be weary. You'll walk and you'll not faint. How do you rise above your storm? Well, we're going to learn from David's experience at Ziglag. Uh, by the way, don't move to that street and you, you might have some trouble uh, getting your mail. But in 1 Samuel chapter 30, we find David in a place called Ziglag. He was a master of pivoting. And we are invited by the Holy Spirit to witness the, one of the absolute worst days in David's life. Listen to verses 1 and 2. The Bible says, now it happened. Say it happened. When David and his men came to Ziglag on the third day, the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziglag, attacked Ziglag, and burned it with fire, and taken captive the women and those who were there. From small to great, they did not kill anyone, but carried them away and went their way. Now, what Ziglag represented to David, who was a fugitive from an insanely jealous king named Saul. It was a, it was a, it was a place, the word actually means fortress, stronghold, the word Ziglag. This was a place where David and his 600 mighty men had found an enemy territory where they could finally call something home, a stronghold, a fortress. While David and his men were out working, three-day job, three-day journey away from where Ziglag was, the Bible says that it came, came under attack. One of the things that is going to be necessary for us to pivot in our tra traumatic experiences is that we need to accept the fact that we will be attacked. You, you, we, we need to accept that the enemy is going to attack us. We're not exempt. Now, in order to appreciate the fact that we are not exempt, then we have to accept that enemy, enemies will attack. And the Bible says, be vigilant, be on guard, be aware, because your adversary, the devil, is like a roaring lion who roams to and fro throughout the earth, seeking who he made. The devil's trying to pounce on us. But if you don't understand, if you don't accept the fact, you, you aren't going to pivot. David was a man after God's own heart. He was the guy who wrote most of the worship songs. All of the book, the book of Psalms is the book of songs. He is the master praise and worship leader. He's the guy we follow. He's the model. He's the template. And the only reason David found himself in, in, the, in, the, in, the, on, on, in the in the eyes in, in terms of the bullseye that the devil was trying to take out is because David decided to accept God's will for his life. David didn't raise his hand to be the king to succeed Saul. God chose him. He was the least among his brethren. And David simply said, if God says it, I'm going to do it. So David was a man after God's own heart, and he was simply acting in obedience, and now he finds himself in the crosshairs of King Saul and the Philistine, the Amalekites in this case. So David understood, and we need to understand, that you can be in the center of the will of God for your life, and the devil will be on you like a bunch of wild, ravenous wolves. Now, notice when the enemy attacked. It was when the men were away. I want you to understand that the family, like no other, like no other time, 
is under demonic attack. One of the reasons that's true is that the men were away, and while the men were away, the protectors, the providers, the enemies crept in. And I want you to know that the enemy is creeping into our homes today while men have let down their guards from the primary role that God has called us to fill, and that is the role of not just provider and protector, but priest. The spiritual covering has been, been let down, and so the enemy attacks while the men are away, and they take David's family and the, the family of the 600 men. And I'm reminded in Psalm 127, the Bible says, except the Lord builds the house. The laborers who are laboring, they labor in vain, and except the Lord keeps watch over a city. The watchman keeps awake in vain. But God says, I give my own peaceful rest. And so when the men were away, how many of you know that trouble doesn't in, ask for an invitation? And uh, it doesn't make an appointment with you and say, by the way, is it okay if I come tomorrow? And, and I, put me on your calendar. No, 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 no. Trouble shows up unannounced, uninvited, without any, you know, no apology. You're having a great day, and then you, then you find yourself with a zigzag experience. That's why they call it trauma. You didn't expect this. This thing shook you up. It came from nowhere. But if you're going to pivot, you need to learn how to accept the fact that trouble's coming. Jesus put it like this in John chapter 16, verse 33. Jesus said, in the world you will have trouble, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And because Jesus has overcome the world, we, have our, we, we, we are overcomers. That doesn't mean that trouble isn't coming. I played for Simon Gratz, varsity football team. I wasn't thinking about football until the coach recruited me from the baseball field. He saw me running and he saw I was fast, and he said, I want you to come out for the football team. And the next question for me was, how do the uniforms look? Yeah, I was, I was really interested in winning for the, no, 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 I wanted to know. The uniforms were nice. Always had a big crowd at the football game. I, I knew enough about, so I said, okay. What he didn't tell me and what I didn't think about is to make the football team, you got to get hit. Oh, God. On the first day of tryouts, there were like 90 guys. And I was one of the smallest dudes on the field. Coach said, we're going to have hitting drills today. I said, well, wait a minute. Define what you mean. And he said, well, let me, let me show you guys what I mean by hitting drills. Lay down on your back, helmets and shoulder pads. When I blow the whistle, you guys try to tear each other up. And of course, there's always a mismatch. You got a guy that's six foot five against somebody who's five foot four, and you got to, okay. So the next day when we came out to practice after the hitting drill, the team went from 90 to 50. And most of the guys that quit were the biggest dudes on the team because they weren't prepared. They didn't accept the fact that you're going to get hit. If, you, if, if you're ever going to score a touchdown, you need to understand that there's going to be opposition, that the enemy's not going to just let you roll into heaven without trials and tribulations. If you're going to serve the Lord and, and pivot when you're tried and tested, you need to, gonna, you're going to need to accept the fact you're going to get hit. You're going to get hit. But the Lord said, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Greater is he. We say that verse all, and I can't, but it's true. Is he who is in me. I can do what? All things. Through who? Oh, that was kind of, through Christ who strengthens me. You accept the fact that you're going to come under attack. That's how you're going to pivot. Here's the second thing. You need to anticipate that God is going to measure your trials. Say anticipate. God will measure your trials. 
The Bible says, and in verse 2, it says, and he had taken captive the women, those who were there, small and great. He did not kill anyone, but carried them away and went away. God will measure your trials. Now, David didn't have privy to this information that we had, that the people that had been taken away, as far as he knew, the Amalekites had all burned, burned all the property down the ground, took all of the, anything that they could with them, but the way the Amalekites rolled, they killed everything that moved. So as far as David and his men were concerned, their families were dead. But God says they took them captive and didn't kill anyone. God will measure. He knows what matters most to you. He knows how much you can take. Use this verse all the time. There's no temptation that has taken you, but such that is common to man. God will not allow you to be tempted beyond you are able to bear. You're, what you're going to be tested with is not what will be a test for me. He will never allow you to be tempted beyond what you can handle in his strength. The Bible says, for we have a high priest who has been tested in all points just as we are. His name is Jesus. And he, he, he was tested, but he's without sin. That's why the Bible says, you can come confidently unto the throne of grace to obtain mercy, to help anybody in a time of need. We can bust into the very throne room of God and ask for help. Because we have a Savior, the Word became flesh, the Bible says, and we beheld his glory as the only begotten. God did not allow the enemy to attack. He allowed the enemy to attack his family and his finances. And here's the biggest thing that the, the Lord allowed to be attacked is his faith. Every test is really a, an attack on our faith. Will you trust God in this storm? Will you really believe that this weeping that I'm going through right now, God said it would happen. It would endure. He didn't give a length of time, but he said, but joy. I can see joy coming in the morning. How can you see it when you're hurting? Because faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of not things not seen. He did, he, he allowed, Satan had to ask permission to test us. What God allowed did not permit him, Satan, the enemy, to destroy what mattered most to David. We used to do door-to-door -door evangelism in the community, in this area, and we'd go out on a Saturday morning, and most of the houses had gates. Then there was a, a, a door that, 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 that you had to open to get inside the gate. And then there often was a, a marker in the ground that would say, uh, uh, protected by ADT. And then when you get to the door, there'd be another sign, beware of killer. <laughs> that means there was a dog in the place. And, and, and then there was a door you had to get through. You had to knock on the door before somebody came. Now, the fence is a hedge. The gate is a hedge. The marker is a hedge. The, the, the sign about killer and the bowl of a dog in the yard is about killer and the door. All of that, those are protective devices to keep you from what matters most to a family. You got to go through all, and you got to penetrate the gate and the door and the signs and all of that to get to what matters most. I want you to know that God has put a hedge of protection around his people. And in his hedge, sometimes when he's trying to develop us, Jesus told his disciples when they asked, why is this man blind? What sin did he commit? And Jesus said, this man nor his parents have sinned, but that the works of God might be manifested. God will allow testing in our life to develop us spiritually. And so he will move one gate back. He'll move a sign back. He'll move a, 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 another sign back. But what matters most, what would cause us to be tempted beyond what we could bear, God will not give the devil permission. He did not allow the devil to take Job's life. 
but his family and his finances and his friends. Wife even lost her mind. God will move the hedge of protection. But we need to understand, if I'm going to pivot in the midst of all this, I'm trying to figure it out and feeling bad, trying to give somebody some guidance and counseling, I need to understand that God, will, no matter how bad it seems, he will never allow the test to be greater than what I can take. He will measure, he will measure my test. Somebody say amen. amen. Aren't you glad that God never allows us to be overtaken? And so you need to accept the fact that the enemy is going to attack. You need to also pivot by understanding that God will, God allows tests to come, but never beyond what he's equipped us to bear. Am I right about it? Here's a third thing. In verses 4 and 5, the Bible says, Then David and the people who were with him, 600 mighty men, lifted up their voices and they wept until they had no power to weep. There's a difference between weeping and crying. These men, 600 men of battle, they allow themselves to grieve. The five stages in, in grieving when somebody's dying or has lost something, there's this first stage, denial. Denial becomes anger, and then anger becomes bargaining. Maybe, God, if I go back to church, if I, if I start tithing again, if, and so there's a bargaining. And then there's depression. Why me? And finally, when you get to the end of the five stages of the grieving, there's acceptance. So here these men are. They're in the first stage. It's not denial. They are in the stage of anger and disbelief. And they're just crying. The Bible, when they talk, when the Bible says weeping, they were just crying until, how long did they cry? The Bible says until they couldn't cry anymore. Have you ever cried so hard? I mean, the weeping, this is weeping. Crying is the sound of sadness. Weeping are the tears of sadness. And so the scripture says that the floodgates opened. They, they wept until they couldn't weep anymore. I've cried at times so hard that my eyes literally closed shut. I couldn't open my eyes. Never knew you could cry so hard. Eyes swollen shut. Guess what? God ain't mad if you cry. It doesn't make you, make you Ill, 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 emasculate. You're not, it doesn't make you feminine because you shed tears. The Bible says we grieve as those who have hope. We do grieve. Jesus said, blessed are they who mourn, for they will be what? You'll be comforted. If you ain't mourning, you won't get no comfort. If you hold all this stuff in. So these men cried until they couldn't cry anymore. And they were crying because of complicated grief. You know, we talked about the different types of grief. They had, they had lost their, they were on the run as fugitives from King Saul. They were, they were in enemy territory, the Philistines. They finally settled down in a place called Ziglad that they thought was their home. And now their children and their wives and their possessions. This was complex grief. This is the kind of grief when you talk to somebody and you say, hello, and they just start. And you don't know where it came from. They're just weeping uncontrollably. I see a lot of that. People crying. Men just bowled over in tears. And then you begin to hear this story. They've been holding it in for years. They thought by not crying it meant that's what a Christian does. That's what it means to have faith. That's what it means to be strong. No, that's what it means to have a nervous breakdown. That's what it means to, to suggest to people who are grieving that you don't care. They don't need a Bible verse. They don't need you to pat them on their back. They don't need you to, oh, your mother's in heaven. I know she's in heaven. Lazarus was in the tomb. Jesus knew that he would raise him from the dead. But the scripture says before he prayed and resurrected Lazarus, Jesus wept. 
Jesus wept. Death is not our friend. Death is an enemy that resulted from Adam's sin. When somebody dies, and I say this to my children again and again, if I'm dying and you're in the room and nobody's crying, I'm going to take my oxygen off. And I'm going to do the Jacob and Israel thing. Israel going to sit up and he's going to slap some folk hard enough that there are going to be some tears up in that room. Somebody's crying. Allow yourself to grieve. All that you've gone through these 18 months. The danger is that we are moving away. It's so quick to forget what we went through. We can easily slide back to what we were. No, we ain't going back to that. You need to get this out of your system. You need to understand that your soul has been wounded. You need to understand that you've been mentally and emotionally under oppression, locked in your house, hidden behind, man. You need to cry out. Let's have a crying party. We about to cry today, y'all. Get it out. Some of us have been holding this stuff in for years. And you take it into your marriage, stuff you never dealt with, the wounds that never healed. Your tears can be the, 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 that, Gil, that bomb in Gilead. I was called to a house. A man was dying, and his wife said, he won't lift the shades. He won't let us turn the lights on. He's sitting in total darkness for the last two weeks. He only allows me in the room. I'm the only one who can bathe him, but I'm bathing him in the dark. He won't eat. He was the foreman of his job, a construction worker, the biggest man in the room when he stepped in. You just had to take notice. Everybody leaned on him for strength. She said, Pastor Vincent, could you just try? I, I don't know if he'll let you in, but would you just try? So I agreed to go in the room, and I went to the man, and he let me in the room, and I got down on my knees next to his bed, put my hand on his shoulder, and I said, sir, are you angry? He said, yes, I am. I said, tell me about your anger. He started talking about his anger. I said, do you feel cheated? He said, yes, I do. I helped so many people. I went to church. I gave my tithes. I, uh, he just went through this whole list. And then I said, are you depressed? And the next thing I knew, this man just started crying and weeping uncontrollably. He couldn't even get the words out. And he went on and on just crying. I said nothing. I just kept my hand on the show. I didn't pray. I didn't read a scripture. I didn't try to give him an answer. I just let him weep. Finally, he stopped weeping, and he said, thank you. He said, lift up the shade for me now. I'm hungry now. Bring my family. And what, 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 what was wrong? He hadn't been allowed to grieve. He was still trying to hold it together. He didn't want anybody to see him in his weakened state. When he understood it's okay to weep, it's okay to grieve, it's okay to look at what you have gone through during these last 18 months and say, I never would have believed this. I never would have believed this. Some of the things that are so hurtful to me is how selfish people, I never would have believed this. Allow yourself an opportunity to grieve. That's how you can pivot. Here's the fourth thing. You still with me? We're almost done. One more. Avoid taking matters into your own hands. Pivoting. The Bible says, now David was greatly distressed in verse 6, for the people spoke of stoning him because their souls of all the people were grieved, every man for his son and his daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord. Two pivots. The brothers went from crying to thoughts of killing something. 
They went from compassion to homicidal thoughts. The scripture said they picked up stones. They picked up bricks. We're going to hurt. We mad. We want to feel better. Somebody's responsible for all of this. And so their response, their pivot was when they got pushed up into a corner, when somebody tested to see how saved they was, the spirit was willing, but the flesh said, I'll take care of this. <laughs> the spirit did one of them Peter's things. Oh, you coming after Jesus? I got something for all of the coming after Jesus, folks. He pulled out a switchblade and cut a man's ear off in the name of Jesus. <laughs> Some of us, when we get under pressure, somebody said, why do you put, how, how do you know what flavor tea bag is? Put it under some heat. You put us up to, um, under some heat. Oh, we might cry with you, and we laugh in one minute. Next minute, we throwing stuff, and we cussing folk out, and putting our finger on somebody's chest, and going out. I've seen people going out with, with, with metal objects and dinning people's cars because you, you drove too slow. I'm trying to get somewhere. We're trying to get to the next store. What, what do you mean you're trying to get to the grocery store? That's, that's the kind of world we live in. People pivot to anger, pivot in their flesh. Sometimes we pivot in the flesh by becoming fearful. But the Bible says, I have not given you the spirit of fear, but a power and of love and a sound mind. Jesus says, fear not him who's able to destroy your body, but rather fear him, God, who's able to destroy both body and soul and send you to hell. Yes, who you need to be fearing. How are you pivoting to your trauma? Are you becoming more and more fearful, more and more uh, resistant to, to, to trusting God and, and, and stepping back. I, I don't know if I'm going back into a building again. Well, I want you to know that every time Jesus stepped into a crowd, his life was in danger. While you're in the world, there's going to be trouble. But you don't want to pivot in the flesh. Well, I know how to hold my hands. Well, people ain't using hands like they used to anymore. Smiths and Wesson, you know what I'm saying? Uzis. We'll be going to your funeral and say, yeah, they were good with their hands, but somebody had came to, the, came to a knife party with a gun. <laughs> Notice how David pivoted. The Bible says when he was in crises, he strengthened himself in the Lord. David responded spiritually to the same pressure that everybody else was under. Now, I used to think that that meant he prayed and that he, that he quoted scripture, but now I think it really means, see, strengthening yourself in the Lord is really not about God's power to deliver you because David was still facing the bricks. What it really means is that David had the ability in the midst of his struggle to enter into the very presence of the Lord where there is joy and peace forevermore. He was able to step out of the physical realm and enter and never, never go nowhere. But right now I'm in the very presence of the Lord and in his presence I'm all right. And so he strengthened himself by stepping away from the bricks and turning his focus to the one who was with him in his valley in shadow of death. If you, if you, you see, some of you just gonna go right over your head because you don't know how to get into his presence. See, when you can enter into God's presence, that, goes, that comes from spending time with him. He said, my sheep hear my voice. In a oh, you need to learn how to hear the voice of God in the midst of your trouble. And when you do, you're in his presence. The stones are still being waved at you, and the, the, the accusations and the anger, but you're in his presence now. What can the enemy do? I'm in his presence. And when you're in his presence, you hear the very voice of God. And that makes everything all right. I don't know how many people I prayed into heaven because they got into the presence of the Lord before they left their physical bodies to be permanently in his presence. When God shows up in your situation and you know that he's there, you're no longer afraid. You're no longer afraid. 
Martin Luther King, I've seen the promised land. Who is the promised land? Nobody but Jesus. You need to learn how to get into his presence. When I was growing up, sometimes I start stuff. Mm-hmm. And somebody said, I'm going to get you at the school. And usually that meant that they're going to bring a crowd with them. They ain't coming by themselves, all their cousins and friends. And so I said, all right, no problem. I said, well, I, I, we, I'll take you the way I want you to, we're going to do this. Because I knew I had two cousins named David and Cephas. They were thugs. Oh, they liked to fight. Oh, they did. What I understood, if I could just get to 31st, 30th in, in, in Dakota, if I could just get to where David and Cephas were, if I could just get into their presence, I could lose. Because they would do it, it once I got into there, they would always do what needed to be done. If you get into the presence of I, who, the one who said, I am that I am. I am the God of revelation. If you just get into my presence, I'll handle this. If you cast your cares upon him, he will handle your situation. Just get into his presence, and you will find yourself strengthened. Oh, I was bad. When I'm bouncing around. I'm dying. Everybody swung. I'm bad. Because I was in the presence of somebody who had my back. David, David knew how to avoid taking matters into his own hands. Here's a fifth thing and final thing. Well, actually, there's one other thing. Aren't you glad? David, once you get in the presence of the Lord and God does what he needs to do, here's another way you pick. Ask God for help. And sometimes the answer God will give you is say, go get professional help. Some of us need some therapy in Jesus' name to the 10th degree. Because we, we don't know how to work things out. The Bible says there is there's wisdom in the multitude of counselors. Now watch this. In verses 7 and 8, then David said to Abitar, the priest, the Amalekite, the, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, uh, Ahimelech's son, please bring the ephod, the priestly garment, with the Urim and the Thummim and the 12 stones of the nation of Israel. Bring that to me. That was what they used when they would pray, when they were serious prayer. And Abitar brought the ephod to David. So David did what? He inquired of the Lord, saying, shall I pursue this troop? Shall I overtake them? And he answered him, pursue, and you shall surely overtake them without fail and recover all. David asked the Lord for help. If nothing else during these 18 months, your prayer life should be a lot stronger than it was. You ought to be, and here's how David prayed. He didn't say, bless me. He said, shall I pursue? Shall I overtake them? And then he didn't do anything until God said, gave him an answer. In other words, he was specific. The Bible says, if any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God. We have not because we ask not. If you ask anything in my name, Jesus said, God will do it. Have you been specific in your prayer request when you petition God? He asked God for help. That's how you need to pivot. Let me talk to God. I'll get back to you. What do you mean talk to God? I'm going to pray. Before you eat, I'm going to pray. <laughs> you better be praying. So David asked God for help. Are you asking God for help when you're making major decisions? Solomon said, lean not to your own understanding. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and he will direct your path. I challenge you to try God. Try God. Let him direct your path. Let him direct your path. Let me finish with this. Once you've asked God, you've give, allowed yourself to grieve, you avoid taking matters into your own hands, you accept the fact that you're going to go through, anticipate that God's going to measure your treasure. Here's the final thing. Act on God's revealed will. In verses 9 through the end of the chapter, David, the Bible says he pursued the enemy. 
<laughs> it don't matter if God answers. You done read the Bible. He done told you to forgive your enemies 50,000 times. He done said, pray for those who despitefully use you. Bless those who curse you. If your enemy's thirsty, don't give them lie to drink. Give them some water and feed them. I'm just praying for an answer. No, 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 you're not praying for no answer. God already answered. Here's the issue. We are educated beyond our obedience. We don't lack revelation. It's application. The scripture says faith without works is a plane without wings. That baby ain't flying. That baby's not flying. That plane's not going anywhere. David pursued the enemy, and God kept his part. The Bible says that he, re he recovered everything that the enemy had stole. That's what they get. Take back what the enemy has stole. How much can you take back? Everything. David said, God said, you won't lose anything if you obey me. Why? Because you asked for my help. Oh, when you ask for the Lord's help, he will answer. Do I have a witness? Do I have a witness? I, I, I know you can talk to your friends sometimes. And, 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 but what you come to understand, what David understood, sometimes you, you, you can't go to the elders. Sometimes you can't go to your wife. You can't go to your husband. You can't go to your friends. They can't help you in the midnight hour when the tears are flowing. That's why you need to do with David. He learned to encourage him. You better know how to get in the presence of God. Paul said, everybody forsook me at my first trial, but God, God stood with me. You need to learn how to be in the presence of God so you will stand with me now as we're closing. We want to know how to pivot, right? We want to accept the fact that the enemy is going to attack. Anticipate that God's going to measure our trials. Allow yourself time to grieve. Avoid taking matters into your own hands. Ask God for help. Act on God's revealed will. Stand with me. We all know the story of Joseph. God gave Joseph a dream. He didn't ask for the dream. God gave him the dream. And all he knew to do was tell it. And because he told the dream, his brothers hated him. They were verbally abusive, mentally abusive, emotionally. They, they beat him up and they sold him, sold him into slavery. Stripped him of all his clothes. They could care less if he literally lived or died. They left him in a cave. And then when some Midianite uh, uh, travelers came by, nomads came by, they said, oh, you can have them if you give us some money. Sold their own brothers. Joseph ended up in the house of a man named Potiphar and his wife. This brother's fine. He's honest, too, young, inexperienced. Nice target. Here's the thing, interesting thing as you're going through these, all these traumatic experiences that Joseph went through. Kept saying that the Lord was with him, the Lord was with him, the Lord was with him. Joseph would not compromise and have sex with Potiphar's wife. She lied and said that he raped her. Potiphar, Potiphar I don't believe he believed his wife, but he had to do something. If he believed her, Joseph would have died, but he put him in jail. Joseph spent at least seven years in jail. The butler and the bakers promised Joseph that when they got before the king, they would remember that he interpreted their dreams. They didn't remember until the time was right. And, and every time, the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. Joseph was ultimately elevated to the second in charge. Only Pharaoh had authority over Joseph. He was, he was in charge of the entire land during the seven-year famine. With, and it came to be, it happened, it happened that Joseph's brothers now are standing before him. No, they're actually, as the vision said, they were kneeling before him. He recognized them, but they didn't know who he was. Now Joseph has to pivot. Here these jokers are. Been 15 years separated from my family. Abused and lied on. They took my clothes off and let me for. They, 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 they sold me into slavery. I'm in authority now. I'm about to pivot on these dudes in the flesh. That's not what Joseph did. He pivoted.
living it in the spirit. He said, what you intended for evil, God, God meant it for good. He sent me ahead of you to save a nation. I don't know what your next pivot might mean. But that next decision you might mean when you're faced with harsh words, when somebody threatens you, or you lose something that's important to you. But I tell you, if you respond by pivoting in the spirit, you may be saving a generation. You may be saving a nation. We need to learn how to pivot to overcome trauma. Let's pray. Father God, in Jesus' name, we are so grateful that we can learn principles from your word. That when they are applied, we are able to walk in victory. We become overcomers. We become those who literally have a voice a, a prophetic voice in a world that is looking for a word from the Lord. But God, if we're pivoting the way the world's pivoting, if there's no distinction between the wheat and the tare, the goat and the sheep, we have no hope. And so God, I'm praying today that your children would turn, adjust, embrace change. Speak over dry bones. Speak over pain and, and all the stuff we've been through. And declare God is for me. And he is working for my good. Somebody say, God is for me. Say it like you mean, God is for me. And he's working on my behalf. Somebody ought to praise him right now. If you believe that he's for you, you ought to give him some praise. You ought to celebrate the fact that you are in his presence right now. I'm about to pivot into some praise. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Somebody ought to thank him. Oh, let's just say, let's pause for a minute. Give him some thanks, church. Give him some thanks, church. Allow yourself to learn how to experience the presence of the Lord. Let the push the flesh out of the way. Hear the voice of the Lord right now. Hear the voice of the Lord right now. I'm for you. 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 I'm your shield. I'm your buckler. I'm your shade on your right hand. I'm your hiding place. I'm your refuge. I'm the source of your salvation. Oh, feel his presence right now, church. Let him have his way with you right now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen. amen.